my real hope with the burgeoning amount of research around the gut microbiome, you know, things like psychobiotics that are being looked at and, and being studied, that we might be in a position where people have an option of doctor assessing them to see, look, you can do, be okay without a medication, but here are some realistic options through food. Welcome to The Better Podcast, where we provide guests and topics and a little touch of humor to fuel your health and longevity. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Farrell, founder and CEO of Better Health. And with me, standing in for my co-host, Erin Ahern, is Barbara Baez, registered dietitian. And we have to admit that you're also a Better Health coach and former first starting as a client. So welcome, Barbara, to the co-hosting position. Thank you so much, Dr. Farrow. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'm so excited about today's topic. This is amazing. And it's really easy shoes to fill because Erin's really not that good, uh, <laughs> even though she's an award-winning journalist and a news anchor for ABC and, and Philly. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. None. Okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, so exciting topic today. The best-selling author is with this, Dr. Naidu, and she has a book called this is your brain on food. So how exciting for us, because man, I will never stop talking about it. And no one in my family will listen to me. So maybe they'll read Dr. Nader's book and actually start listening to what she has to say. She is a Harvard trained psychiatrist and a professional chef. And who would have thought those two, two things would come together? Because in the psychiatry world, right, we generally think towards big pharma. And now we have a medical doctor turned chef that's just relying on big farmers uh, to help people uh, kind of reverse this mental health crisis. So she's got the first hospital-based nutritional psychology service in the United States. She's the uh, director of the nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry at Mass General, director of nutritional psychiatry at Mass General Health Academy. And while she's also serving at the faculty at Harvard Medical School, and then what in her spare time, she's whipping up delightful treats to help, uh, help save the world. So we're excited to have you, Dr. Naidu, hello. Thank you so much, Dr. Fred. It's really lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So tell us why, okay? You're, you know, you set out, you set out to be a force to be reckoned with, with in psychiatry. What happened? What, where did you make this shift into the, the nutrition or the, this is the, your brain on food process? Well, thanks for asking. You know, I think that the more I think about it, hindsight is twenty twenty, And I didn't come with a plan, but I did follow things that I loved to do and study. But it really stems from my childhood. I, I feel like saying that, you know, in some ways it's in my genes. I just grew up around a lot of food, nurturance, family, love, medical science. And the reason is that I skipped out of school. I wanted to hang out with my maternal grandma, to whom my book is dedicated, and my, that, the reason was my mom was a double board physician and she was in medical school. So during the daytime, I would spend time at my grandmother's. So my grandparents taught me how to meditate. They taught me yoga. But I also watched her cook. You know, we'd pick fresh vegetables from the garden. I'd help her, you know, clean some of the vegetables. But I'd watch this process. Then we'd eat a meal together. And this was very much a, a big part of my childhood. But then I was also surrounded by uncles and aunts who were in medical school. And then we had a couple of Ayurvedic practitioners in the family. So conversations were also science, medicine, Ayurvedic practice. And it was something I absorbed from my environment. So 
As I thought about it, um, the one thing I didn't learn how to do was cook because there are lots of cooks in the kitchen, grandmothers, aunts, older cousins. So I just hung around and helped, you know, but I never cooked. I learned how to bake because my mom recognized that I loved science. So, you know, when you when you cut to sort of later in my life, as I began to study in both medicine and had an interest in mental health, I felt that there needed to be more tools in the toolkit. I, I kept thinking, you know, what about if someone's anxious, why can't they learn mindfulness or meditation? And it was, wasn't necessarily part of general practice, but it was in what I felt. So a few things happened early on in my career. As a very young psychiatry resident, a patient yelled at me. And you know, you're pretty timid when you start off in training and you, you want you please your patients and you don't want people to be unhappy with you. So I was still at that stage, let's say formatively. And this gentleman that's called him Bo came in and yelled at me um, saying that I'd caused him to gain weight after starting Prozac. And I had in fact initiated the, pro- the prescription a few weeks before. But I knew looking at his medical record, which was in front of me on the computer that, you know, it wasn't, he had started off at a certain weight. I hadn't caused this. Although, of course, Prozac can cause it as a side effect. As he was yelling at me, I looked at what he had in his hand. And in Boston, our favorite coffee is Dunkin' Donuts. It originated in Massachusetts. And he had a big 20-ounce cup of coffee. And I said, hey, Bo, when you, you know, I, I know you're upset, but let me just ask you something. What's in your coffee? And he looked down and Said, oh, the federal, you know, and I and I recalculated. We sat down on the computer, and recalculated that he had more than a half, more than a quarter cup of processed creamer, and about eight teaspoons of sugar. And I worked out with him. I'm not much of a calorie counter, but I worked out with him the amount of additional calories he was taking in. Whereas just a black coffee could have been okay, could have been relatively healthy. He wasn't someone who was anxious. It wasn't worsening his anxiety in any way, and. That moment when I saw the almost the light bulb go off in his head that, wow, that actually makes sense. So someone was yelling at me. He then understood this translated information. I had my aha moment because I realized the power of just a simple translation of information in someone who was drinking something every day, not that he had to give it up, but he could tweak what he was adding to it. And that really set me off on a path of adding this into how I began to talk to patients and really pursuing different areas of how I put it together. Not necessarily because I felt, you know, I needed to study this or that. I really wanted, there's a huge gap in nutrition education in medical school. We all know that as doctors. So I I really wanted to learn more. And the only thing I would add to this is that when I went to culinary school, that was an ode to Julia Child. She was just my food hero. And as a a very poor psychiatry resident, I could only afford public television and she was on public television in Boston. And it really helped me kind of gain uh, confidence as a young cook before that, even to follow recipes and that type of thing. So I really felt it was a way to round off my own personal journey. But when it came together in the way I was able to form my clinic, I felt very blessed. So it's a very long story, but that was how it evolved during the course of my life. Uh, Julia Child, what a great reference. Uh, can you give us a, a do you do a good impersonation of her? I mean, she I was can't. So, I can't. <laughs> she was so iconic. You could be anywhere in the house. And when she was on the television, she you would, even, kid would, even as a child, you'd walk by and she just, she was so infectious with her melodic, her melodic ways and how she, you know, brought cooking in the kitchen. So what an amazing, uh, you know, for the kids out there, she was the, she was the OG chef, right? Right. She was, she, she's, 
she's every dietitian's hero. Like every dietitian <laughs> like swoons over the thought of Julia Child. So yes, that is amazing. And doc, when, I, when we look at the patients and we look at the explosion of mental health issues, and I agree with you where we're not, cal- we're not big calorie counters as well. We're looking at the inflammation and the stress that the person has both, you know, of course, mentally, but it's easier for us because I can focus on the internal inflammation. We talk about kind of brain setting. We had, had the other doctor on, she was talking about set points within the brain, which I'm not a hundred percent sure of. I really like realize that our brain has neuroplasticity. You've talked about this before. Can you explain what neuroplasticity is and neuroinflammation and uh, neurooxidative stress and how that relates to the body and what you're putting into the body? Absolutely. I think we need to probably start with the gut brain um, axis because it's sort of, you know, that is the connection between the brain and food. And I think that that helps people translate the information and then understand those other components. So, you know, I think that one of the things we need to know is that if, if someone went to medical school a few decades ago, they didn't study the microbiome because it really wasn't part of our, our understanding of gut and the science behind it. It's really in the last one and a half to two decades that that is virgin. So between 2013 and 2017, there were about 13, 12,000 or 13,000 publications in the area. And what it has informed my practice in nutritional psychiatry is that we now understand there is this connection between the gut and the brain. They arise from the same exact cells in the embryo. They remain connected throughout life by the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve. I like to call that a two-way superhighway, uh, allowing for information back and forth 24-7, 365 days a year. So both organs influence each other. And then, you know, we know about selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, like my patient Bill had taken, but more than 90% of the receptors are in the gut. And, you know, for the, the purposes of the pandemic, people also should know that 70% of our immune system are boys in the gut. So the gut is a powerful organ that interacts with everything else. But one of the huge organs it interacts with is the brain. Therefore, food that we eat as it gets digested can be broken down. I like to really simplify it for people and say, you know, if you eat a good meal, a healthy meal, it gets broken down into positive products for your body, but a less healthy meal breaks down into more toxic products for your body. That's where the, the, the whole cycle around the gut-brain connection, as well as conditions like oxidative stress, or neurooxidation, neuroinflammation, and neuroplasticity come in. Until, I would say, going back to, to a few decades ago, we, we thought that the brain couldn't change. But then science showed us that there's neuroplasticity. So that is super helpful to know because the brain can evolve and change and, and adapt. And that becomes important because what it also says is that how we eat can impact things as well. It becomes one of the big drivers, as does inflammation, because I like to say a happy gut is a happy mood. And I say that because if there's inflammation in the gut, often one of the causes can be what we're eating. And then that ultimately loops back to brain inflammation. And so studies of Alzheimer's, studies of cognition have all spoken to how dietary changes can actually impact your inflammation. It's similar with conditions like depression and anxiety or others where when there's new inflammation, someone will have an uptick of symptoms or what we've seen in the pandemic is people who didn't have symptoms before were coming in with new found diagnoses and symptoms as evidenced by the amount of prescriptions that were new for anxiety, insomnia and depression about April of last year in the surveys that were done. So all of this is in fact linked. I'm not saying that food was the only cause there because obviously emotional stress, stress in the body, all of that counts. Environment, toxins, it's all a system. But food and nutrition is one of the things. And so 
for example, neuroplasticity can affect, be affected, neuroinflammation from inflammation in the gut. And then oxidative stress can be really one of the ways to people read about, you know, eating blueberries because they're antioxidants, but they don't actually often realize what those foods are doing. You know, we need antioxidant foods to offset radical oxygen species in the body, which get naturally formed. And if, you, if left on their own, they can cause damage to the body. So we want to eat antioxidants, including things like spices, including things like blueberries, including fruit and vegetables, which are rich in those polyphenols, because they offset the oxidative stress by getting rid of radical oxygen species. So that's the reason to eat antioxidant foods. And so understanding those three components based on the gut-brain connection becomes important for people. So I think when you mentioned like, you know, blueberries and reducing oxidative stress, the way I would explain it to my kids is I would say, they're kind of like, you know, Oprah's greatest things when she was like, you get an electron, you get an electron, you get an electron. Do- those things donate electrons to neutralize those free radicals so that their body exactly can right. flow unimpeded. The second part of that, there's so many people on SSRIs, right? This is just overwhelming. Knowing that the digestive system produces 90% of our serotonin, as you said, most of the receptors are there. What is the theory behind using SSRIs? And do you think by improving the digestive health and the brain gut connection that they, they could be eliminated or not really necessary at all? Just curious for your thoughts. Sure. So there are a few different aspects to this. One is that, you know, think, I'll always go back to food. Why do we have convenience foods? Uh, because we tend to be an impatient nation. You know, we tend to want things fast. We want to get a quick meal. We want to do something rapidly. That's not the only reason for convenience foods, but it's one of them. So if you think about that dynamic, I think that when people are not feeling good, they go to a doctor to get a fix, to get fixed, to feel better. And I think that doctors are in a position where, A, we don't learn enough nutrition in medical school. So like you go off and study nutrition as I did, you, you really don't have those tools to have the conversation. So doctors will go to a prescription pad, our system is set up this way. So most doctors will say, here, here's the prescription. There is almost no room in that discussion for what else could we do? You know, are you exercising? Are you sleeping well? What are you eating? You know, all of these things matter. So that's the one component, I think, convenience, wanting a quick fix, wanting to feel better. And when someone's not feeling good, feeling anxious, of course they want to feel better. I understand that. But another component of it is that, you know, I don't think we're at a point where we could give up medications. So I have to assess in each nutritional psychiatry evaluation that I do a personalized nutritional plan for that individual. Some people are functioning. They're going to work. They, you know, speaking on a podcast. They are showing up at their Zoom meetings, but they're anxious. And they they wish that they could be feeling less anxious. And they might be in a functioning state of mind, but they can work with me around just nutrition. But others might need a medication or someone else might be prescribing a medication. They might come to me to tweak their dietary changes to help them. And over time, some people get to a lesser dose of a medication. And I think over time, my hope, my real hope with the burgeoning amount of research around the gut microbiome, you know, things like psychobiotics that are being looked at and and being studied, that we might be in a position where people have an option of doctor assessing them to see, look, you can do, be okay without a medication, but here are some realistic options through food. I don't think we're at the point where we can say that yet, 
But I think it would be awesome to be in a position where people had that option. And I really have a lot of hope around the exciting and sort of cutting edge work that's going on around the, the gut microbiome, because I think we headed in that direction, but we, we're just not there yet. And then also to remember that the serious conditions that, you know, you, you can't just say to someone who's actively suicidal or manic that they don't need a medication because you have to get them to a safe state. First of all, thank you for your work. The confidence in how you're portraying this and your thought process is just so refreshing. It's, it's not a black or white issue. I think that's where we always polarize ourselves. And that's what makes our patients so upset is that one doctor says, nope, it's 100% this way. This expert says it's that way. And they're stuck in the middle. What you're saying is there is a middle ground here. We're going to assess you to that. And there is some level of some need, may need more medication than less. Some can actually do most of this with diet and nutrition. And by coming to you and going through that assessment, you're able to give them just what they need, the right amount of it. Secondly, I'm inside, I'm so happy because, so I'm a chiropractor by training. I put chiropractic offices in gyms at about 30 of them. And I watched people come in and we get them from pain out of performance, but I realized we were battling internal inflammation and they weren't preparing, they weren't getting there. They were yelling at me saying, hey, you put me on this diet program, this trainer, I'm not losing weight, and they get frustrated. And I would tell you that it was out of 100 patients that would come in that were seeking just better wellness, the transformation happened in less than 5% of them. And I felt like a fraud. I was like, this isn't working. So I started researching inflammation, and it brought me to digestive health. But as you mentioned, there wasn't a lot of research on there. So do you know who Flavor Flav is? Uh, I don't. Okay, so Flavor Flav is NWA, big rap group, and he's the guy that just ran around the stage when the other rappers were professing, and he would just go, yeah, boy. That's how I feel right now. I'm your Flavor Flav, Dr. Naidu. You're on stage <laughs> dropping this amazing knowledge, and I'm running about like, yeah, I told you, I told you. A real Harvard doctor, amazing. She said it. It's gospel. Drop the mic. You just gave us a drop the mic moment, Dr. Naidu. It's a very, very impressive. Thank so, you. I love that. <laughs> I so, love being a rap star. Like, so if we can be, you're a rap we can rap that. You're, you're, you're a rapper. And I think we can, my flavor, flavor is probably spelled flavor and flavor because, you know, you're the chef. So we can really have some kind of fun with that. Barbara. Yes. You know, I actually, you, you, I have a question for you, Dr. Naito. So um, in your book, you do talk about the importance of the gut microbiome and the direct relationship to the brain, but then also something that we don't think about and that I actually haven't been enlightened to until reading the first chapter of your book is the inverse of that as well. How external stress can then go back and affect your microbiome. So can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I found that just so interesting. It's very fascinating. Absolutely. You know, there's also research around sort of emotional health and the impact of the microbiome, how our thinking, how our thoughts impact the little microbes that live down there. And also the fact that stress is such a big driver. You know, I, I feel like stress is the other vital sign that we should be checking as doctors because it impacts so many different things and it, it's become universal and the impact on our body is huge. So someone who's super stressed, you know, you get that cortisol release, you get the high cortisol. Well, it also affects our little microbiota and those microbes down there. And and it sets off all the wrong sorts of reactions that we really want to fend off. And it sets up inflammation for one. So it's bi-directional. We want to think of this as a system in our body. So our emotional health, our, our physical health, our stress, our thinking, all actually impacts uh, the microbiome. You know, we talked about the, the Dunkin' Donuts, the chemical sweetener, and 
you know, that thing. Talk about sugar. I'll add this, that because of the stress that we have, the emotional, mental stress, our society's kind of been designed to be in stress. The top selling product of all time is disease, right? This is where there's a lot of stakeholders that don't want us to get in a state of ease because the dis is helping us. And I describe the dis as the D is for doubt, the I is for inflammation, the S is for stress. And oftentimes I'm going to say, yeah, sugar's not great for you, but why are we craving the sugar is in response to that stress, right? The adrenal glands are firing. It wants sodium, potassium, sugar. That's what's driving this response for stress. So when we talk about sugar today, I want people to realize we're not saying, yeah, cut out sugar. You're all good. Understanding why you're craving that sugar is important. And then for you to tell us, what is it doing to the body? Like what I love about your book, it's your brain on food. You're going over what it's actually doing. So could you just describe what it's actually doing in the body and why it, it is so uh, you know, detrimental? So in my book, This Is Your Brain on Food, every chapter has a list of foods to embrace, which I'm happy to say are longer than the foods to avoid. And why did I put in foods to avoid? Because there are many things that people are eating that they're thinking, oh, you know, I have a family history of diabetes or I've gained some weight during COVID, but they're also affecting your mental health and sugar is one of them. And I want to be specific. We're talking about added and refined sugars here, good amounts of fruit, either fresh or frozen, actually good sources of sugar and part of a healthy fiber-rich diet, which we need. But I think that where we go wrong is we don't realize things like fast food French fries have sugar in them because the research and development to make them hyper palatable has added in sugar that we don't necessarily perceive or taste. But these are forms of hidden sugar, which are in our everyday foods that we might be eating. There are upwards of 200 other names for sugar on food labels. Many Americans don't know how to interpret food labels. And one of the reasons is that we bake our recipes uh, are standardized in the United States to pounds and ounces, but our food labels on grams. So here's the thing, you know, if you tell someone, oh, you should eat this amount of sugar as our guidelines do, they look at a food label and they don't know what it means. So, you know, there are a lot of sort of missed steps that get us confused, but sugar, those added refined sugars affect our brain health. They worsen anxiety, they worsen depression, and they definitely disrupt the gut. In terms of cravings, one of the things that we've actually shown through research, sugar acts in the same dopamine reward pathways as things like cocaine, street drugs. So when people crave something, they tend to want more, but think about how someone who's struggling with cocaine, if you've seen it depicted in a movie or you've had you know, some experience with it as a clinician or doctor or, or seen it happen, um, people just want, want more. And a similar thing happens with sugar. So it's, it's important for us to understand the kind of the neurochemistry behind it as well and understand that there has to be a different way that we look at it and how do we step back from it. Uh, and I think it's very hard. It's especially very hard during the pandemic because there's been an uptake of the eating and purchasing of processed foods. And so, you know, all of this comes back to say that it's just not a healthy thing to be consuming, not just for our weight or diabetes or some other, other medical condition. It's also our brain health. And the moment that people start to modulate it as they can, they really do see an improvement in their mental health symptoms. You know, it's interesting. And I think this is a point you should, everyone needs to take away with is that we're not villainizing fruit. And a lot of diabetics, uh, people with diabetes too, will actually feel that way. Last night we had a call, a woman got on and she'd been on doing our methodology. We do an elimination reintroduction process with a heavy influence on gut health. Within eight weeks, she came off all of her insulin, meaning her doctor was able to slowly bring her down, no more insulin. So she went through it. 
And she did this eating apples and oranges and blueberries and strawberries and salads and just feeling good. And another caller said, hey, I'm worried uh, because you have apples and oranges on the plan and I'm diabetes. And I said, didn't you just hear the last person? It's so ingrained now for these diabetes two folks and even diabetes one, like, oh, sugar, they just immediately, you know, now all forms of sugar are bad. And that's unfortunately, I think, sending people over to kind of a ketogenic approach to lose weight, but now you're not fueling the microbiome. And what we find is by the diverse array of foods that they're eating, then the microbiome starts craving more healthy foods. And so where this person couldn't pass a sugar bowl without diving in two weeks ago is now like, no, I, I want an apple. I want blueberries and, and sugar. Exactly. And that's been proven in research. The diversity of um, the microbiome is one of the, the healthiest things that we need for a microbiome. And you get that through the diversity of the foods that we eat. And I absolutely agree. You know, people demonize fruits. And yes, we have to eliminate certain foods. But people really need to be eating a couple of servings of healthy fruit today. You know, I usually say to people, eat the whole orange, skip the straw-bought oranges because the added sugar and the fiber removed. So it's that principle. Stick to frozen fruit, frozen berries or fresh fruit, and you'll be fine. And always in moderation. So the fiber, the vitamins and nutrients from those are not matched by other things that you might think. Uh, you're eating or taking in. You did mention the pandemic and how diets and things are affecting things. Can we talk a little bit about the silent pandemic and about mental health and how that's being affected through the course of the past year? Absolutely. So, you know, the, the silent pandemic uh, or the parallel pandemic, as some researchers have called it, is really the burgeoning amount of, of problems in mental health. The way that I've sort of documented my thinking and looking at the research through the course of the pandemic is that uh, the American Psychiatric Association did a survey at the beginning of the pandemic and what they found was people were most worried about the uncertainty. And I would argue that more than a year later, that uncertainty persists. They also looked at a few other things, which also panned out. And some of it included in around, I think, spring of last year, Express Scripts did a survey and they showed the uptick of prescriptions for insomnia, anxiety, and depression significantly increased in new prescriptions. So these are not individuals previously diagnosed. And then June of last year, Zoloft went on shortage, uh, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, very commonly used, it went on shortage in the United States. So, so there, were, there were all of these signs that things were, were increasing. And then some very serious data came out from the CDC around some of last year, which showed the most concerning, there were many things about depression, anxiety, substance abuse, but the most concerning was that 11% of Americans were thinking about suicide. And that's a very huge number for people to, you know, to be ruminating or to be thinking on it. We also saw that about 20% of teens were considering suicide, and that was very, very troubling. So where that's left us is that we know that substance abuse, use of drugs and alcohol has increased. We know that abuse because of the quarantine and the need for safety uh, restrictions around our movement and where we're living. And, and we also know that depression, anxiety, trauma, and insomnia have increased. Insomnia, in fact, is called coronasomnia, as many, many reported in the media, because people are so worried during the pandemic that they're just not sleeping well. So what I'm most concerned about is where do we go from here? You know, our, our metabolic health is in state of crisis. We now know that there's research has shown that this level of inflammation in our bodies and our gut actually is related to different mental health conditions as well. And, you know, I, I sound like a stuck record, but I, I have to say that the one thing that could make a difference in addition to everything else is how we eat. 
nutrition is the one lifestyle measure that could potentially have an impact. Like you mentioned your patient and coming off insulin in a similar way for mental health, that's one of the low hanging fruits, so to speak, that we can reach out for while we do everything else. You know, we should be paying attention to how we're sleeping. We should be paying attention to hydration, you know, because I practice a holistic, integrated and functional approach. So I want people to meditate. I want them to do, and then they don't have to do a denominational form of meditation. They can just practice a moment of silence. They can learn some mindfulness. They can learn a breathing exercise and, you know, movement and exercise become important. All of this is sort of a, a holistic approach to our health. And I feel like the crisis that's emerging is, is how poorly people are feeling emotionally. And, and I'm worried about that. I'm, I'm most concerned about that. Yeah, I think we, uh, a recent study showed that one in three COVID patients are diagnosed with a mental health issue. We, one of our other episodes, we had Dr. Paul Wishmeyer on from Duke University, and he's doing a big study using probiotics to keep people off ventilators. They first saw this in SARS and just taking a probiotic each day. I have my, my thoughts on that. The probiotic without the fruits and vegetables and water to me is like throwing seeds in a desert, but it's definitely better than doing nothing. Uh, but I still feel like you're missing the full boat by not doing the food with it. But we were talking about it and he was saying that when COVID patients are coming into the ER, within 24 hours, the good bacteria to bad bacteria ratio had completely shifted and that the bad bacteria actually can signal the other bad actors to go there. Man, if that's 70% of your immune system, if that's controlling your inflammation, if that's the expression of your DNA, reducing your serotonin, no wonder there's that steady decline without bringing it back. What was so interesting to like listen to all of that part of it was just how ripe we were for this pandemic, right? Our soil was so off that we were just ripe from, from doing this. So it's just... Uh, you know, if anything, the, the COVID has actually taught us, you know, it's, it's sort of shone the light on the things that it's been horrible. It's been, you know, I'm, I'm not undermining the loss and the pain and devastation that people have suffered, but it's also really shown and taught us how poorly our metabolic health crisis is in this country and how that has placed us at increased risk for pre-existing conditions, therefore leading to worse outcomes with either death being the worst from COVID or other disabilities, and one of them being mental health. And the uptake of mental health in even COVID survivors is very concerning. So I think, you know, it, it, it's sort of a reset. It's a time for us to really look at what we can do differently. You know, we would know that industrialization has changed the food system. So what within the food system can we select to eat or how can we eat in a healthier way that at least protects our brain? certainly from my perspective, and I, I would argue that when we're eating healthier foods for our brain, it's also impacting the rest of our body. Because, you know, the, the, those little gut microbes, they respond within 24 hours. So you can be at the fast food place today, or you can have that healthier option, lunch or dinner, and they can respond. You won't feel it immediately, but it starts to set up that cascade of change. Uh, what you feed them is how they respond. If you feed the bad microbes, they take over. And that's when you get dysbiosis, inflammation, leaky gut, etc. So it's really up to us in that decision every time. Like I say, you know, that decision is, is at the end of our fork every single day. You know, we, we had to first convince the health plans to cover this. So we were a little bit before our time in 2010, 2012, when we started taking people through this method, it was just about weight loss because we were in these gyms and that's what their main motivation was. And I wasn't paying attention, but now I go back and look at some of like the video testimonies we had. I remember this one woman uh, that was working with Gold's Gym in Los Angeles. So they'd sent to us, you know, most people were just going, I lost 30 pounds in such and such days. I lost this. And she said, 
I'm not anxious anymore. I'm not nasty anymore. It was just such a raw, she was thinking about herself. And I, I had not at the time truly put it together. I just thought she was happy with the weight loss. And then more and more people started coming to us saying, you know, I've come off this medication, my IBS app. Fertility doctors started sending folks to us, people having problems with infertility. And they, you know, six weeks later, like, hey, we're pregnant, doing well. And it wasn't until 2017, 18, that we said, we should go back and go to these employer groups. And they said, well, what's really different? I said, you know, what's different is that most of the programs are spending so much time on behavioral change, like telling the person it's your fault, you need to make this better decision. But really, they have no choice because the inflammation in the environment is is working against them. So if they can just slowly just change that internal environment, just in three days alone, the cool thing about, like we just mentioned in COVID bacteria, that it it goes to bad bacteria very quickly. It can go to good bacteria just as quickly. Bacteria grows quickly. So within a few days, you're already resetting that process. And then within two weeks, you're resetting the mucous aligning. When you think about restoring mental, physical, and emotional health, when you think about the journey that we used to put them on, which was, well, flip tires and parking lots, shakes, points, we'll see in six months. Now it's, hey, you know what? In the next three days to 14 days, you can truly be on a much faster path to health. And as you mentioned with Americans, we do want to feel better quickly. Well, putting your microbiome and lowering inflammation is the quickest way to do that. Exactly. If we, if we could all just realize that, absolutely. Yeah, it's so, it's so great. So one of the questions we had, uh, what are five foods people can introduce to reduce stress uh, and anxiety? What, what would you be like if you had a, your top foods? And we also want to talk about the SFN. We don't want to forget about talking about SFN, which is you talk a lot about your Instagram. So if you maybe talk about some of those specific foods and then enlighten us on what SFN means. So the foods that I like to talk about, I start off with chocolate because that's a good place to start and people love to hear that they can eat dark chocolate. But I'm not talking about candy bars. I'm talking about the super dark, uh, more natural form of chocolate, rich in cacao flavonols, also contains things like magnesium. It's a probiotic because of how the cacao beans are uh, fermented. And they also contain serotonin. So I think that one of the important things for us to understand is that it's a small square of dark chocolate will actually help two things, in my opinion. It helps stress, but it also helps people come off those high sugar candy bars and, and candies themselves. Because people who start to appreciate that texture and flavor of the dark chocolate will often come back and say to me, Doc, I just need a square of chocolate in the afternoon and I'm good. I don't no longer need the two candy bars from the vending machine. Then I always add in things like berries. So uh, eat your berries, you know, your blueberries, which are rich in those antioxidants, um, anthocyanins, which are great for your brain. I also like to lean on spices. Um, Spices are a really hidden treasure in this toolbox that we have. Things like turmeric with a pinch of black pepper actually been shown to help anxiety and stress. So add them in. Things like those, we mentioned the sulfurophane vegetables, they're actually really rich in fiber. Vitamin D rich foods will help um, lower your level of stress. So add them in. But also, you know, spend 10 minutes out in the outdoors. Uh, 80% of our vitamin D is really obtained through direct exposure to sunlight. Simple things like that kind of help us reduce our stress. I also like people to understand, and it's a good way to get fiber in, that um, fiber actually helps with anxiety because when we eat a more complex carbohydrate or complex food, think of, you know, a great vegetables, uh, great vegetable salad uh, or a leafy green salad, great for us to not only eat, but rich in fiber and all the vitamins and minerals and nutrients, but the fiber actually 
breaks down more slowly in our body. It feeds those good microbes in the gut, but it also breaks down more slowly. So unlike a sugary donut that you have, having a more fiber-fold or fiber-rich meal will really help to even out your blood sugar and, and avoid those spikes where sometimes people will feel super anxious. So it's just another way to combat the stress. It's much more complex than that. There are many more foods, but those are just some that I, ha- I ask people to, um, you know, to, to help them get started. Excellent. I have a quick question. As a dietitian who also struggles with anxiety, what would you say Mm -hmm. is your go-to anxiety hack for the listeners? So I actually lean very heavily on spices. I use my grandma's recipe to make a golden uh, chai latte, and it can just be a golden milk latte. So choice of milk, turmeric with a pinch of black pepper and a few other ingredients to recipes on my Instagram. That's actually my hack because it's warming. It has uh, a little bit of turmeric with that pinch of black pepper to make it more bioactive and bioavailable. And people uh, find it very soothing. I also think that people ignore things like a, a, a cup of chamomile tea or, or a lavender tea. All of that can also really be super common. So I, I tend to go with that first because for me, it has that turmeric in it, which is a, which in my opinion is a super spice. And it's something easy that any one of us can do. Right. So I just want to interject here really quick and just say that you have so many great resources on your social media, on your Instagram. So I encourage all of our listeners to go to her Instagram page, please, Dr. Naito's Instagram, and click around. There's so much great information there. um, And I cannot wait to try that recipe. And I also have to say, as somebody that struggles with anxiety, your book is such a ray of sunshine that you encapsulate the whole human in your approach. And there's no shame in those that take medication or rely on other other things. You do such a fabulous job at truly helping people to use food to help in the specific conditions. And I have to say that your book does such a fabulous job at that because it is written in a way that when you need that specific support, for that specific issue that you're dealing with, you can turn to the chapter that is written as a standalone to help support that. So if you guys can get a hold of the book, and I know Audible specifically has it, so you can listen. Yes, um, it's a great book to listen to and, and also to read. So yes. Barbara, give your experience with, you know, kind of using food as medicine. Right. Okay. So I came to Better Health as a client from my insurance. And I always say thank you, dad, for having diabetes because- Because my dad has diabetes, now insurance covers all sorts of proactive things for myself. And, you know, I joined because as a dietitian, I like to know what is out there. And I also struggle with inflammation, with weight, with anxiety. And as a stay-at-home mom, you know, it's so easy to, to get away from the things that we know. And so Better Health has truly helped me personally with not only the protocol and identifying which specific foods were reacting in my body, because, you know, we hear cruciferous vegetables, we should eat tons of cruciferous vegetables. Well, my body was reacting to broccoli and oatmeal and these things that we just, we know are healthy. And it's not that they're not particularly healthy. It's just that they react in my body. And so really fine tuning my nutrition to work for my body has helped me tremendously. And so better health has done that for me. Basically, they hold your hand through the whole process. They give you the information and they empower you to be able to take it on and continue forward. And so that's why I've come to serve the company as a coach, because 
how greatly it has impacted myself. And as a dietitian, it just really, it helps, I guess, the style of service is that you're getting to interact with people every day versus when you are with insurance in a clinic, in an outpatient setting, you're limited to your interactions with your clients to either once a month, if you're lucky, or just when they're in the hospital coming out of surgery and you get to quickly come in as they're coming off of anesthesia to educate them on nutrition. So I do feel like insurance has come so far with the pandemic in learning what what we can do to improve and providing these proactive strategies now. And I think that your book, Dr. Nido, really helps to support support that cause. And, and anybody, whether they have insurance or not, can get this book and can turn and start getting help right away. You know, a lot of the different medications for anxiety and depression, they take, what, three to five weeks to start kicking in. You can maximize that if you pair it with Dr. Nido's book and start really fine-tuning your nutrition to help support your whole person. You know, you really have to look at it as, as a whole. It's not just medication and it's not just food and it's not just decompressing and stress relief. It's the whole person. And Dr. Nido, you have done such a fabulous job um, portraying that in your book and supporting those of us that have anxiety in such a loving way. You just come across as just such a sweetheart and just so loving in your approach. And so I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words. Dr. Dr. Nido, are you treating people through telehealth outside of Massachusetts? So uh, so right now I can't actually, because during COVID, we had a little bit of flexibility and now some of that is changing. So I see people within my clinic from Massachusetts. We are still virtual for the, my part of the clinic. But, you know, I, I have, we have uh, an Instagram account. We interact with people. I put updates and really, really working on doing some educational programming. I've done some through the Academy at Mass General. We put out the first Cooking for Mental Health Professionals series in February of this year, where I paired up with a colleague of mine who's a uh, family therapist, really talked about family dynamics around food, but then healthy recipes. So really more like that, that offers what I feel will help other clinicians just incorporate this in their practice. I guess what the book taught me, Dr. Phil, is that you can take a message out of that one-to-one office-based setting and make it broader. And I guess I'm really trying to offer more educational opportunities so that more people can have access to this type of care. So that's my hope and goal. Well, to bring this out, first of all, I'm coming for you. You got to come join our mission. We need you. (laughs) Like We need that bridge, that gap. But secondly, when when we were talking, I was like, all right, I tell the folks, all right, we're going to try to separate this from the ease so you can just have ease in your life. And the issue here is this is intergenerational. This isn't just about health. This is about financial wellness as well. And that there's so many generations of people say, well, this is just what our family does. Our family struggles. Our family suffers. And I think what's interesting that you brought up and started this conversation to bring it full circle is you were a little girl in the kitchen uh, with your grandmother, and you were getting this intergenerational connection and passed on this wealth of knowledge about how Ayurvedic medicine works, how food is medicine. When we look at food as medicine and, and the way things in your book is this is that you're applying this not just your own life, you got to apply this to this child's life, to the parents that are living with you, because we can't have our kids the way they are now, full of anxiety and ADHD medication. We can't have our kids in their 20s that have no confidence trying to make their mark on this world. 
people in their 30s are worried whether they're going to be able to have a baby or a family. People in their 40s are just carrying around copious amounts of stress, worrying about the top generation and the lower generation. And then we have those in our golden years, the ones that in our society, we've kind of pushed out to the side, right? They're not inclusive. That, those are the people that should be enjoying an active, healthy, and wealthy lifestyle so they can pass it on to the generation, the intergenerational part of it. And so by leading by example, by talking about that first, I think it was just a beautiful way to kind of bring us all back to the movement that if we can help people, as to your point, on a broader scale, identify where that self-doubt is coming from, where the inflammation, where the stress is coming from, collectively as a community, we can kind of make it easy. We can make it easy on each other. And so we just appreciate you so much for joining us. I know you're very, very Thank busy. You. So I'm gonna let you go I'm save sorry. more lives. I'm sorry, can I ask you one? I just have to interject. So I'm out here in sunny California. It is beautiful weather out here today. It's a great time to get outside and start gardening. So do you have any recommendations on any herbs or plants that would be great to help support the movement of mental health and especially for Mental Health Awareness Month? Absolutely. So I actually have a post on Instagram called Mental Health Garden. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O, where we talked about several herbs that actually support mental well-being. So that's why we call it Mental Health Garden. And I'm directing you to that because I think there are a few that you could choose from. It, you know, I often will have someone say, oh, I don't need a certain herb spice. So it offers you a good array of things. And I, I totally agree. Go out and get planting, have it easily accessible. You know what you know what you're putting in your soil. You can add it to your food and flavor up different dishes and add those uh, to roasted vegetables. One of my favorite things. All right. Thank Excellent. you. I appreciate that so much. Go get the book. Yes. Yes. And if you don't get the hard copy, get the audible version, you guys. It is so beneficial and you can skip around and get just what you need out of it. Well, thank you so much. We, we appreciate it. Thank you, you so much. We appreciate it. Take it. Care. Great to meet you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone, to The Better Podcast brought to you by BetterHealth.com. For episodes, be sure to subscribe to this feed on the podcast app you're using right now. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Dr. Bill Farah, and we'll see you again on The Better Podcast. Hey there, listeners. Did you know we not only have an award-winning podcast, but we have an amazing blog to go with it? If you go over to BETRHealth.com and click on the blog button, you'll have access to recipes, member stories, food is medicine tips, and so much more. That's BETRHealth.com slash blog.